So this morning, our scripture text is a story of power and intrigue. It's a political drama. And we love those stories, don't we? The West Wing is one of the highest rated shows on IMDb and one of the most watched prestige shows of the modern era. House of Cards on Netflix, which is even more dramatically political, uh, is one of the most popular streaming shows. And then there's the granddaddy of them all, Scandal. <laughs> Anyone a member of the, the Shondaverse? Yeah. <laughs> we love to see powerful people being powerful and being flawed. We love to have the insider knowledge. We love to have the skinny. And it doesn't stop at TV shows. Who wouldn't want to know what has gone on behind the scenes at Redskins Park these past few weeks? <laughs> Who wouldn't want to find out the real story between a hired, then praised, then fired general manager? Who wouldn't want to find out what they've really offered Kirk Cousins to stay? And what is keeping him from signing that deal? A couple of weeks ago, we finished another season of The Bachelor. And yes, I watched. Hashtag Team Raven. Don't, she will be fine. She was too good for Nick anyway. If you don't understand that, you're probably better for it. It's okay. But if the show finished a couple weeks ago, we are about a month away from Us Weekly and People Magazine selling thousands of magazines with the promise of getting insider info on Nick and Vanessa's relationship. And what stories get the most readership in a newspaper? Is it the article explaining the minute details of a proposed bill? Or is it the article with anonymous sources that talk about infighting within the White House? Or, for balance's sake, that we could say that uh, has people only identified as top Democratic aides revealing how lost the party is. Regardless of party affiliation, we want the dirt. We want the gossip. We want the insider scoop. This morning, the Bible gives it to us. Not about Nick and Vanessa, but about the king of Israel, the kingmaker, and God's pick to usurp the throne. I'm going to read the story and then I'm going to go back and look at each of the characters involved and go into some of their backstory. So take the story for what it is and I'll fill us in on some of the details as we go further. This comes to us out of 1 Samuel chapter 16. It's printed in your lifeline, displayed on the screen right here. Uh, and if you it's, it's in the Bible as well, and if you would like a Bible and don't have one, uh, we have them available for you to use here, or use here and take home, or just take home um, every week. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, 
The elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, Do you come in peace? Samuel replied, Yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel says, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, Send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel went back to Ramah. Now on the surface, this looks like a fairly standard Cinderella story. Samuel is sent out to find a new king, and it winds up being the ruddy younger sibling that becomes the belle of the ball. But it's so much more. Cinderella is a story of possibility, about rags to riches, and about a prince being surprised by love. But this story involves God. And if this story involves God, then it is about so much more. It's about how we tend to value things and people and how God tends to value things and people. It's about what we tend to look for and how different that is from what God tends to look for. And it means everything as we begin to turn the corner and head towards Easter. But to understand that, to really dive deep into the story, let's look at the characters involved. First one being Saul. Our story begins with God asking Samuel, we'll get to Samuel in a minute, why he is grieving over Saul. Saul was the first king of Israel. Let me back up a bit. Moses leads the Israelites out of Egypt and then dies just before they make it to the promised land. Then Joshua takes over and leads them into the promised land and leads them to a military conquest of the promised land. After Joshua dies, Israel has no leader but God, and God appoints an ad hoc leader called a judge during a great time of trial. There are a series of judges that see Israel through different threats. Eventually, Israel demands that God give them a king so that they can be like all the other nations. And Saul is chosen. In the ninth chapter of 1 Samuel, we meet Saul for the first time in the story about him being chosen as king. And the first time we hear about Saul, the first thing we hear about Saul, is that he was as handsome as any young man that could be found, and he was a head taller than anyone in Israel. And that's Hebrew for tall, dark, and handsome. 
Initially, Saul seems like a strong leader and achieves important military victories. But power goes to his head. Throughout Israel's short history, there has always been a division between the political leader and the priests, between those that order the people's lives and those that mediate between God and the people. Saul was charged with ordering the people's lives around the covenant. The priests were charged with offering sacrifices on behalf of the people of God. Now I tell you that because power goes to Saul's head and he believes he can do anything he wants. After a military victory, Saul offers sacrifices to God, taking for himself the priestly responsibilities. God is greatly offended at this, as Saul is acting in defiance of God's will. Here's what we need to know about Saul. He's everything we would want in a king on paper. He's tall, strong, charismatic, strong leader, good in battle, keeps the people safe. Aside from a minor overreach, there's nothing too bad about him. Except at this point, he isn't what God wants because he lacks something that God considers very important. But that gets me ahead of myself. Our next character is Samuel. Our story this morning really follows Samuel, who is the title character for the book. The first book of Samuel begins with his mother, Hannah. Hannah was one of two wives of Elkanah. Elkanah's other wife gave him children, but Hannah was not able to conceive. Hannah prayed to God, and Elkanah offered sacrifices on behalf of his wife, but to no avail. So Hannah prayed that if God would give her a child, she would give the child back to God. Hannah does conceive and bears a son whom she names Samuel. She brings Samuel to the temple where he becomes a priest under Eli. Now I got a break from the story because Hannah is one of the most amazing characters in the Bible. Not gonna lie. She goes years without getting a child. And uh, El Elkanah's other wife did not let her forget that she bore sons and Hannah couldn't. So Hannah prays and prays and prays and finally conceives and, and, and bears a child and then gives that, follows up on her, on, on the deal, on the promise she makes with God and gives the child back. Gives the child to the temple. The one thing that she had wanted, a son, she gives the, t sorry, I love Hannah. Back to your previously scheduled sermon. When Samuel was a boy, God calls him and tells him that he, he Samuel, will be a prophet in Israel. When the people Israel demand of God a king, God tells Samuel that it will be Samuel that will find that king. Samuel, Samuel, Samuel is literally the kingmaker. He's the one that finds Saul. And it's easy to see why he would have picked Saul. Again, tall, dark, handsome, man's man. And when God rejects Saul, Samuel takes it hard. My guess is Samuel felt like a failure. But God sends Samuel out again to find another king. So he goes to Jesse's house in search of the new king. Samuel first sees Jesse's oldest son, Eliab. And Eliab is tall. And Eliab is handsome. Eliab is everything that Saul was. And Samuel thinks, this is it. But Samuel is looking with the same eyes. 
He's still looking for the same things. And God has something different in mind. I think the hardest part about being a follower of Christ is learning how to consistently evaluate things by God's standard. We're brought up seeing the world a certain way, evaluating things based on certain standards. Then God reaches into our lives, changes our world, and we realize that does change the way we are called to live. But it can be hard to fully realize that in our lives. Oftentimes, we revert back to an old way of seeing. We become like Samuel. God has sent him out to find a new king. And instead, he is looking for a younger version of the old king. But God is doing a new thing. We too can do that. We can make choices based off of old ways of thinking when God is trying to do something new in our lives. And Samuel is shocked as God rejects son after son until there are no sons left. Wait a minute. What's going on? I was told I'd find a king here. I've looked for a king here. And you've said no to all of them. I've got this final rose to give out here, God, and no suitors. Yes, that was a bachelor joke. But Samuel trusts that God knows what God is doing and asks the question, is there anyone else? And then enter David, who is our final character. So Samuel asks Jesse if he has any other sons. And Jesse says there is one more, but he's the youngest and he's out tending sheep. This already makes him at least qualified to be the king. In ancient culture, youngest couldn't, the youngest couldn't usurp the oldest. If a blessing was coming to a member of the family, it was due to the oldest member of the family. I believe there's a great Shakespeare play about that. And we know how David's own family valued him. He was the one out with the livestock. When he enters, we are told that he looks... Oh, in other translations, it says ruddy and rustic, but has beautiful eyes. And God picks David. Samuel and the rest of us must wonder why. God says he doesn't judge people the way that we judge people. Samuel was looking on the outward appearance, seeing everything Eliab was and everything David wasn't. God was looking at their hearts. Now, in the ancient world, the heart was not something that was valued. They wanted strength or wisdom, compassion, empathy, caring, love. Sorry, I delivered that poorly. Let me go back. We believe in grace. Now, in the ancient world, the heart was not something that was valued. They wanted strength or wisdom, compassion, empathy, caring, love. These were not traits that you prized. But they were what God wanted for his people. They were what God prized. They were the things that God said made a good king. Now, there's much more we can say about each of these characters, but sadly, we don't have the time. Instead, I want us to ask what all of this means for your life and what it means in the context of Lent and Easter. Lent and Easter are about learning to see things with different eyes. Lent and Easter are about learning to see what God values and how that is different from the things that we value. Lent prepares us 
as we seek to ask a simple question. Where do we look for our salvation? The world has an answer to that question. The world says we look for salvation in the almighty dollar. The rich are saved. The world says that we look for salvation in the powerful. Those in politics can be our savior. The world says we look to the strong for salvation. Physical strength and military power can be our savior. Lent says that a peasant born in the boondocks, a slave to the political and military and economic empire, will be our salvation. Lent prepares us as we ask what winning looks like. And the world has an answer to that question. It looks like defeating your opponent, subjugating your opponent, having power over your opponent. It looks like being in control. It looks like being independent. It looks like being immune to strife or difficulty or affliction. Lent says winning looks like the cross. Where will you look for your salvation? What will you think represents a victory? Too often we look at things people look at. Too often we look with old eyes. This Lent, let us consider things how God sees them. God looks at the heart. God finds salvation and in the margins. God finds a king in the fields. God finds a Messiah in the, in the boonies. God finds victory in the cross. And as Christians, we are called to do the same. So here is your task today, or this week. David, God's chosen king, was found among the marginalized. Jesus Christ, God's only son, was found among the marginalized. Your task this week is to do or is to seek God in the marginalized. Your task this week is to do something for someone that society marginalizes. Serve someone who is homeless, whether by giving money or giving a meal. Serve at a homeless shelter. Donate to an organization that works with the marginalized in our community or in our world. Do something this week that reaches out to, that puts you in contact with someone whom our society reduces to the margins. And in so doing, find God and Jesus Christ there. Let us pray.